Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the head, sorry, over the beast and his image, and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding the harps of God. And they sang this song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will, will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. After these things, I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened, and the seven angels who had seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests was golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. And then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of wrath of God. So the first angel went out and poured his bowl on the earth, and it became loathsome and malignant sores on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his name and his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to its to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasted the name of God, who had the power over these plagues. And they did not repent, so as to give him glory. When the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the, the river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way would be prepared to the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes, so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Carmageddon. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and, the, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found and huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. 
and the men blaspheme God because of these plagues of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Please have a seat. Okay, welcome back to Revelation, and if this is your first time here, uh, what a time to come to the church, and I'd recommend that you uh, read the previous, or listen to the previous 15 uh, chapters to get an idea of uh, sort of what the gist of Revelation is and where this thing is going. But this section is typically known as the bold judgments, and it's the third and final series of judgments in Revelation. I want to make a couple comments about this to remind you of what we've learned so far. First of all, in these judgment series, they act like a bunch of uh, sort of Ukrainian dolls. You know, the wooden dolls, you open up one, there's one inside, it's smaller, and then you open up another, and another one doll comes out. The Ukrainian dolls. Well, God's judgments unfold like Ukrainian dolls. The seven seals kind of all pop out of one another, and on the seventh seal, it, it, it ignites or releases seven more trumpets, and then as you go through seven trumpets of judgment, and then on the seventh trumpet, another set of judgments come out, and it's the bulls. And so what we're to do is to understand that that's sort of how they were set up. But the, the biggest way to interpret these is a word that um, I've used multiple times in our services so far, and that is to understand them through the word recapitulation. Recapitulation, the idea that something's repeated, restated, and so God goes through, uh, or John goes through, um, uh, these three series of judgments in repetition. Repetition. And what he wants you to do is to look at each sequence of judgments to see the judgment from different perspectives. And through the repetition, learn different spiritual truths. What's God trying to say through the seals that's different than the trumpets, the difference in the, the bowls? Now, I'm convinced that this is to be understood in this way and not a linear timeline of events. Not a linear timeline of events, but recapitulation, repeating the same truth, namely because at the end of the seals, trumpets and bowls, we have Jesus returning, the second coming. So he's come back three times in the book, and so therefore he's restating the same truth, ending with the return of Christ each time. So he's trying to let, make you as a reader go, what is different? What's the same? What am I to learn? And I'm going to walk you through what you're to learn about the bold judgments today. If you, don't, if you want to know what the seal judgments are about and the trumpet judgments, then you can listen to those sermons online. Before he gets into the judgment scenes, though, he begins with a significant vision from heaven in chapter 15. And in 15 and verse 1, you see him, we see here, a picture of seven angels holding seven plagues, about to release them on the earth. Seven angels, seven plagues, about to be released. Before the judgment unfolds, though, there's another picture of a, the believing community, followers of Jesus, standing safely in heaven. And we pick this up in verse 2. I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. Now, it's obvious from this description, he's talking about people who've given their lives to Christ. It's people who are what we call Christians, believers. In verse 3, he actually calls them bond servants. They're bond servants of God, which means like a slave of God. 
But I love John's description here. He doesn't call them believers at this point. He are Christians. He calls them people who are victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name. Interesting way of defining people who are secure in heaven. Remember what the beast and the image and all this has already represented so far in our sermon series. All of this is, a, is basically a reference to the counterfeit trinity. There's Satan with his two beasts that he uses to try to dominate the world and persecute the Christian people. And the, and the two beasts were the governing states that he often uses and its propaganda or its uh, religious ideology. And these work together uh, with Satan to basically deceive the world and persecute Christian people. And so he says that the, the people who are standing in heaven safe from judgments are those who have basically uh, not taken that mark. And remember what the mark means. The mark is a mark of allegiance, who you belong to. It's not a single act that you do in history. It's a mark of allegiance. You take the mark of Jesus, or you take the mark of the beast. But it has to do with belonging. Who do you belong to in this world? Who, do you, who are you allegiant to based on your actions and your life and your understanding of life? Where does your moral, morality come from? The Lord or the world systems? And so he's saying these people here are victorious because not only have they been forgiven by Christ, they have not compromised. There's been no compromise. They've been victorious over the beast. In other words, they haven't taken this mark. They haven't compromised when the temptations to do so were strong. And you know what we've learned so far in Revelation. What a, what a commitment to the Lord in that context. Right? Imprisoned, <clears throat> financially deprived, Martyred, you know, uh, <clears throat> the Jewish community, many of them rejecting you. Quite a lot of slander, a lot of things going on in the Roman Empire. But I think there's a lesson for us in this, and that's that we need to be prepared for increasing hostility. We're going to have to be prepared for it. As, as sort of our world puts the clamps down in Christianity, we're going to lose some of these comforts. And the words of Christ will take on new meaning that they've never had before. We've often read in Bible studies in Luke 9.23, things like this. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross daily and follow me. And so we start thinking of North American context in which that looks. And it's not that our applications are wrong, but if you live in this type of culture, it takes on a whole lot of new meaning. Consider the words of 17.33 in Luke. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will preserve it. Again, uh, taking the mark of this world versus the mark of Christ is going to be something as time goes on will come with increasing cost. But when the Lord's judgments unfold, we stand safely in heaven as a result of our commitments to him. Another distinguishing feature is the song they sung. In verse 3, they sung the song of Moses, the bondservants of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord, O God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you. For, you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The background to this song is really important. This song, of the song of Moses, was first sung by Israel after they were delivered from the Red Sea. 
So they came to the Red Sea after the plagues. Pharaoh and his army had come to, to take them out. And God opened the Red Sea. They passed through safely. And they came to the other side. When they got to the other side, Israel, Israel with Moses as the leader, sang a song praising God for rescuing him for all of his works and for the salvation he accomplished for them. So this is the picture of the song of Moses in Exodus 14 and 15. These people now in heaven are singing the song of Moses and the Lamb. And the Lamb. Because it's, he's saying, I want you to go back to what God did there. It's about his works in saving these people from an oppressive empire, from an oppressive ruler. And now you are safely in the arms of God because of what Christ accomplished for you. And this is important too because I think the sea is intentional. There's something, they're standing in verse 2 on something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, as opposed to the Red Sea in the Old Testament time. The sea was a means of deliverance, and here they are standing delivered in the presence of God. But I want you to notice something cool about this song. Notice the absence of any mention of their own victory or achievements. So they've already stood victorious because they conquered the beast, right? To the way they've been committed to Christ. But look at where the praise goes. If you like to circle things, if you're a Bible nerd like me, uh, the word your or you occurs seven times in the NIV. Or if it's my Bible and the NASB, it occurs six times. So the song is about you, about yours, about you, about yours. It's all about what Christ has accomplished, his works, his victory. Because it's through his victory on the cross that we get to stand safely in heaven. And so the praise is all going to God for them standing victorious and not having to face the judgment. So it's a really, really amazing song. But again, I think there's a lesson in there for us as well. And that is that as, as believers, we need to praise the Lord for what Jesus has made possible for us. I love last week was a great example, right? So Darcy puts up his hand and he asks Stuart and the servant, like, you know, I've seen a lot of changes in your life over these number of years. And uh, you're not the same kid as you were. Uh, or you're not the same guy now as you were, like, you know, 10 years ago. What's been the process? How did you change so much? How do you trust God so much with your life? What was Stuart's answer? Well, it's because I understand what it is to be forgiven. And the more you understand your need to be forgiven, and the depth of what that cost Christ, will often result in how much you will love the Lord. If you, if you feel the depth of your sin, and you understand that you've been forgiven much, you can only, in expression, love much out of that, that gratitude. And that's not to say that you have to live a life of a criminal or whatever else, or like, you know, an axe murderer to, be, to understand God's love. I'm not saying that. But if there is something about being totally broken and having the Lord rescue you. And so Stuart was ultimately saying, I'm singing the song of Moses without even knowing that he's singing the song of Moses. It's about what the Lord has done. And this is my love expression to him. So we're going to look at the judgment scenes in verse six, chapter 16 now. And we're not going to go verse by verse. I want to speak about them in terms of overall lessons we can learn from them. The first we can, thing we can learn from the sermon is, and the bold judgments is that these are a deliberate echo of the story of Israel's exodus from Egypt. This entire section is a deliberate 
retelling of this Israel's story in terms of the Exodus deliverance. We've seen this in the song song and the presence of the sea. But it's also similar in the kinds of plagues sent. So in the first bowl, in verse 2, we see sores on the people. That's reminiscent of the boils in Egypt. In the second and third bowls, we see the seas and the rivers being turned to blood. That's reminiscent of the Nile. In the fifth bowl, we see the kingdom darken. Well, again, in Egypt, we saw the sun get blocked out and the, and the, and the 24 hours a day were, were just basically in full darkness. In the sixth bowl, we see the water of the Euphrates dried up. In verse 12, we know we think of the Red Sea in Egypt. And in bowl number seven, in verse 21, we see hailstones. And again, we know about the hail plagues in Egypt. So there's a deliberate echo of the plagues. We also see a similar uh, echo in terms of the distinction made in terms of who experienced the judgment. Look in verse 2. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathem and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. So those who were allegiant to this world received the judgment. The believers are standing safely in heaven, not judged. So we have this picture of a, of a distinction in terms of who experiences judgment and who doesn't. And remember in Egypt, in the, first, in the ten plagues, the first four, they were sort of spread out on everybody equally. But basically, from like the last six, there was a distinction made, and those in Israel in the land of Goshen never received any of the plagues. Israel, and, or sorry, the Egyptians received the rest. We also see, similar to the Exodus story, an opportunity to repent. In verse 9, it says that after the plagues came, they did not repent as to give him glory. In verse 11, they blasphemed God, and they did not repent of their deeds. So even in the judgments, God is expecting or hoping that people could still turn to him, but they're not. They're not. And so we, again, we see that in, in Israel, sorry, in the Egypt story. We see God hoping that people would repent to the judgments of the plagues, but they weren't. Only a few did, and we see them coming out with Israel actually in the Passover in Exodus 12, 38. There's a mixed multitude of people amongst the Israelites. So what's the big lesson from all this? What, like, what's the lesson to be drawn from the deliberate conversation about Egypt? He is not telling us that there's going, you can expect literal plagues to come in the future. I'm not expecting as a Christian 100-pound hailstones to fall in 10, 20, 30 years from now. I'm not. What he's doing is this. He's just making it absolutely clear to the believers in the first century and us now the direction in which this world is headed. Just like in Egypt, where God did not allow the persecution of his people nor the rejection of him to continue forever, so too will be the outcome for followers of Jesus, not only in the first century, but believers throughout history until Christ returns. That's the message. So while God is gracious, one day will come when time will run out, and there will be no more second chances. And he will not allow evil to triumph. This is ultimately a message of hope, to Christians who are being afflicted by the Roman Empire. So with the big picture then, we can learn other aspects of God's justice. 
And one thing we can clearly see is that God's judgment is severe. The language of this section should tell you that. When I read this out, some of you might be thinking, whoa, this is like really uncomfortable. Well, yeah, it's meant to invoke some kind of uncomfortableness to us, to help us understand the sense of the horrific nature of judgment and the sense of terror and how serious God takes sin. But also we see the different we see the severity in the difference between the bowls versus the seals and trumpets. So in the seals, in the four horsemen, if you remember, it would say a quarter of this and a quarter of that. So a quarter of the world this, a quarter of the seas that, and a quarter, quarter, quarter. So partial. In the trumpets, you see a, a one-third. One-third of the world this, one-third of people that, and so on. In the bowls, you see total. It's a finality about them. It's complete. Look at 15.1, the last sentence. In them, the wrath of God is finished. Not one quarter, not one third. In verses 17, in chapter, actually chapter 16, 17, 16, 17 says this, it is done. It is done. There's nothing about limited time, nothing about quarter this or one third that. It's basically, it is done. Time has run out. God is no, going to deal with this no longer. Actually deal with the rejection of him no longer. And again, the whole thing is to basically say, think twice. Think twice about where we stand with the Lord. Another thing we learn in the judgments is really, um, oh, this isn't working again, forget it. Okay, is where that God's judgment is just. His judgment is just. What do I mean by just? It's warranted and fair. It's warranted and fair. Look at verse 5 of chapter 16. He says this, I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. <laughs> the Lord is not indiscriminate. He's not being indiscriminate in who he's uh, putting judgment upon just because he feels like a malevolent dictator. I mean, I've listened to Richard Dawkins before, the atheist, famous atheist. He hates God, he doesn't believe in God, he's uh, anti-Christian, all because he thinks when he reads the Old Testament that God's a, as a dictator, a malevolent uh, person who just hates everybody because he just squashes people and kills people and executes people and eliminates nations. Well, if you go back and read all the stories in which Richard Dawkins makes these claims, when you look at when God judges, none of it's indiscriminate. It's actually against wicked, wicked people who've done wicked, wicked things for a very, very long time. We're talking centuries for some of them. He's giving lots of chances. But at some point, he's, he, God in his mind goes, you know what, it's better for society that these people don't exist because of how crazy they're affecting people. I mean, if you lived in Afghanistan, under ISIS Taliban. I mean, just the, to live in that society with those pressures, wondering if you can, if your daughter can leave the home without being kidnapped, or wondering if you can even like, if being just the fear of having a Bible caught in your hand, what's going to happen to your family? And God's saying, you know, I can't allow this to go on. This is not, this is not in my economy. Again, we also see the, the fact that it's warranted in 16.2. They've taken the mark of the beast in the image. 
They've not been allegiance to God, they've been allegiance to this world. And, and John's saying each act has consequences. But God in his ability has per, is, is really perfect in deciding what's the appropriate consequence based on the degree of sin. And he can do that because he knows not just the external actions, he knows the heart motivations behind the actions. And so we can also trust that his judgment is fair. In other words, he knows what the appropriate punishment is that fits the crime. As a dad, I don't always do that. I wish I did, but I don't. Sometimes, I bet you if God interviewed me, he'd say, Andrew, you were too harsh that day. Next time, he'd probably say to me, Andrew, you were too lenient that day. And then maybe once in a while, he'd say, Andrew, you actually got it right that day. I'm proud of you. So our problem is, is that when we're raising our children, we're trying to execute justice in a, that's warranted and fair. But we don't always know the heart and motivations behind our kids. And we don't always know like, why they've chosen to do what they do. And when we try to get the whole story, it's very difficult because kids have a hard time explaining their reasoning. And so it takes usually three or four children to put the story together to figure out what is actually going on here. And I still feel like I'm missing pieces even when it's done. So again, it's hard for me to execute justice fairly and, 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 and to be warranted in it because I don't always understand people the way God does. But he never makes mistakes in his judgments. He never makes, he makes any mistakes. He's patient at the right time and his emotions are always perfect and in sync with the severity of sin. So he knows how to balance those things together to get it right every time. But one thing that's important about the Lord's judgment, which if I had my PowerPoint working I could show you, is that God's judgment seeks repentance. So not only is it severe, and not only is it just, it seeks repentance. And in verse 9 and 11 we see that clearly. In verse 9 and 11, he says, They did not repent so as to give him glory. And in verse 11, he says the same thing. They did not repent of their deeds. So again, the Lord is after repentance, even in judgment. Remember Dan's sermon on the thief on the cross? He preached, I think, two weeks ago. Right up to the last moment. They've been judged already by the Roman Empire because they're on the cross. And the thief in the last dying moments cries out to the Lord and says, Remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he says, Today you'll be in paradise. So right up to the last dying breath, God is open to a relationship with him. Now what's surprising about this whole thing is people's hardness towards God in judgment, the hardness of heart. In verse 9, it actually says there that they blasphemed the name of God. So they were cursing him. Verse 11 says the same thing. They blasphemed the name of God. They were cursing him again. And in 21, it says they blaspheme the name of God. <laughs> so as God is coming down with justice as a, and to, as a hopes of helping people see, there's still a chance to be in relationship with me. People are not praising him, they're cursing him. They're cursing him. And again, we see an exact picture of that on the other thief in the cross, don't we? There were two thieves that one day. One continued to mock the Lord the entire Easter Sunday or Easter Friday. So Revelation teaches us how to make sense of the world. In all the crises we see, in all the pain and anguish, 
Do we see people turning to God in huge quantities? And the answer is not at all. Not at all. It's amazing sometimes how much we have to get beat up and endure before we can turn to the Lord. And sadly, the majority never do. The final thing in this sermon is that the God's judgment is past, present, and future. Past, present, and future. One of the things I've learned about this book is that the entire letter is not just speaking to a future timeline or a future generation. It's actually a message for Christians throughout all the ages. Why this is important is when we look at the judgment scenes. Yes, it's true. Much has to come in the future. Much of this has to come in the future. But a lot of this has occurred in the past and is going on in the present as well. So in terms of the past, we see this in the four seals. It says in the four seals and the four horsemen, it says that God can bring famine, sword, disease, and death on a nation for, for rebelling against him. Well, I was reading Jeremiah 24.10 this week, and I come across this verse. It said, I will send a sword, the famine, and pestilence upon Israel until they're destroyed from the land which I gave to the forefathers. So in the past, God sent famine, sword, plague, and disease. He also judges in the present. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness. Not will be, is. So currently, right now, God's wrath is pouring down on this world. No matter what generation you're in, this is a true statement. Although, we have to admit, though, a lot of this can also happen in the future. In verse 16-15, he says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. And that's a future, that's him talking about a second coming, a future judgment to come. So what we learn in Revelation, when you look at all these judgment scenes, is that some of these things have happened in the past, some are happening in the present, and some are going to happen in the future. My problem is, which is the same as yours, I don't always know how to equate all of the judgments and how they fit into the past, present, and future. I don't know, I can't say when this event in history happened, that's seal number five, or that's trumpet number three. I don't know how to do that. But what John is saying is you can look at these things through all time and not just look for a future event. So with this being said, though, I do want to speak about bowl number six to finish the sermon. Bowl number six. This is probably the most, one of the most famous uh, bowls in uh, all of the Revelation and one of the most famous scenes. And it's basically this idea that there's going to be a final battle between God and the devil and his army uh, at a place called Armageddon in verse uh, 16. For those of you who take a literal approach to Revelation, your expectation from reading this bowl was that there's going to be a final battle one day that's going to take place in Israel. It's going to take place called Armageddon. Lots of movies made about Armageddon. It's going to be this final battle that's going to take place. All the nations of the world against Israel and God's people are going to come to this seat in Palestine, this land in Palestine, surround Jerusalem and the city, and basically go to war in which Jesus wins. But I want to give you an alternative view consistent with the way I've been teaching this book so far. first reason I don't believe it to be literal is that there's no place in the Middle East or in Scripture ever known by the name Armageddon. There's no place in the Bible ever called Armageddon. 
Second thing is that when you translate the word from Greek to Hebrew, it does mean Mount Megiddo, Har, Mount Megiddo, uh, Megiddo. Now Megiddo is mentioned in the Bible. It is mentioned in the Bible, and you can visit it even today. It's 100 kilometers north of Jerusalem. Now I had a picture in my PowerPoint to show it to you, because <laughs> I took one from the, which is kind of a cool, and Laurel, you had good pictures too. But so it exists in terms of um, Megiddo exists, but here's another issue. Taken literally, it's not a mountain. Megiddo is a military city. It's a city that was sort of like on a hill that could sort of see um, sort of like enemy nations coming upon it. So it's a strategic military city. There's no mountain there. But here's what's important about Megiddo. Battles throughout history did take place there. And it was because of its geographical location that battles took place there. It was on these massive, flat, fertile plains. And it's a, it kind of like exists as a corridor between two continents, Africa and Europe. So the quickest way to get to Africa from Europe is to go through the plains of Megiddo. The quickest way to get north from Africa to Europe is through the plains of Megiddo. So if an army wanted to assemble, it's a great place to come and do battle. So in Judges 4, Barak is seen having victory over the Canaanites in, at the plains of Megiddo. In Judges 7, Gideon over the Midianites. And in 2 Kings 23, the king of Judah, Josiah, went to battle against Necho, king of Egypt. So Egypt came north, Josiah went north, and they met at the plains and they did battle there. Josiah lost that day, but Israel was in rebellion against God back then. So here's the key for John. Because this had been the place of frequent and decisive battles in ancient past, John is using familiar language to symbolize the final great conflict between the forces of good and evil, a battle in which Jesus will conquer evil by his return and the establishment of his kingdom. Remember what Babylon represents, because Babylon is the one who falls here, right? Who does Babylon represent in this first century church? Rome. Rome. Is Rome still stand today in terms of a, as, a, as, a, as a nation, as an empire? No. They've been done with. They, were, they lost. They're, they no longer exist. So he's saying to the Revelation churches, Jesus is eventually going to judge these people. The battle, like these evil forces aren't going to win against them. Babylon in the Bible represents not only Rome, it represents any anti-God system. Any anti-God system. And so basically John's point is in the end, Jesus is going to triumph over them all. He is going to win. So what can we learn from today's message? Four lessons. First one is this. The bold judgments of Revelation 15 and 16 are to be interpreted through the lens of the Exodus story as a means of bringing comfort to suffering Christians. The bold judgments of Revelation 15 and 16 are to be interpreted through the lens of the Exodus story as a means of bringing comfort to suffering Christians. John makes that clear. Virtually every bowl has something to say about the Exodus story. It's a parallel. The second lesson, although God is patient and merciful to those who reject him, there will be a time in which the guilty will be punished. 
So yeah, God is super merciful and, and, and to those who reject him, he, he brings judgment just partially and he's very gentle and he's patient. He leaves lots of room for repentance. But everybody's life comes to a point where it's going to end. Everyone's life comes to a point that's going to end. And the and Lord is saying, even though I want you to repent, I can't force you to. In the end, I have to judge the sins that you committed against me. So John's point really is that there's a certainty of judgment and there's an enormity to judgment when it happens. The third lesson is that we, to stand victorious as a follower of Christ, we must resist every temptation to conform to the world's call for our allegiance. I love that scene in chapter 15, right? He says, um, the righteous will stand over, victorious over the beast in his image. The only way you don't win against the beast is to conform to the beast's ways. So the world's a very attractive place. Even this week, I won't tell you what it was, but I was in a situation and I could feel my flesh wanting to go, go, go back, go back, go back. And everything in my mind is like, look, Andrew, you can't, <clears throat> you can't. Just stay the course, stay allegiant, stay true to the Lord. Don't let the flesh win, stay allegiant to him, stand victorious. Because the world's attractive, there's a pull. But there's a huge reward for us when we stand victorious, or stand allegiant to him and don't compromise. The final lesson, and I love this one, as followers of Christ, it is good to give him praise for all these accomplished glories. They're singing a song of Moses. They're victorious because they didn't compromise, but they didn't turn to the Lord and sing a song about, look at me, God, how good I did in not compromising. They sang the song about the victory he achieved in their life, the way he's radically changed them, produced salvation for them, forgiven them, so they can stand in his presence. And I'm, I'm glad that's why we sing at church in the mornings, and that's why the communion is great too, because ultimately we're turning our attention to the Lord, giving him praise for all he's accomplished for us and in us. And so it's a good practice as a Christian to do that.